Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Film in the shape of Dragon Slayer. Now I've got a soft spot for Dragon Slayer. I, I, um, um, it has it has nice chowder, but it, it's just so depressing that the king claims all the credit for killing the dragon at the end, and you know everything else. <laughs> the, the hero just kind of slopes off. Oh, there does have that bizarre thing of going, "What? That person was a woman the whole time." And what is it about characters in films that are always bamboozled by this? You know, a woman puts on some trousers and cuts her hair, and all of a sudden, indistinguishable from a young male. I think, you know, when it comes down to it, though, who doesn't want to see a dragon flying around on screen? That's the thing. The dragon effects are pretty good. Um, Rubbish. But, you know, is that the first... Is that the first time that we see an you know an actual special effects of a dragon flying around? I can't remember really before them. There's a lot of dinosaurs before that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there was. So I think that was the flying is a hard thing to crack, with, even with animation. I mean, that was what excited me about it. I mean, I just remember it being it was a bit uh, again a kind of an earthy fantasy thing. But I just remember I was watching it because of the dragon. That's what I, what I was caring about. You see, and it, it, like the film would have been so much shorter if the old wizard had just explained his plan at the start. <laughs> you see, the problem with 1981 is that a lot of stuff happened. So, you know, there isn't really any other way to start a podcast than to get straight into it. Now, I haven't yeah. seen Dragon Slayer in, in a very long time. Uh, and I am Leo, and I am one of the 80s kids. Uh, that intense discussion there came from some other 80s kids who were... Well, I'm Ian, and I am the uh, one of the other 80s kids. <laughs> and I'm Justin. And, and they know a lot about Dragon Slayer, and I, I, it's another one of those movies that I came to first uh, via a graphic novel. I did, someone bought me the, the comic version of it, so I read that. I, I, I came to it first because there was an advert for it in the back of a Blake 7 magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Um, I mean, and I think... Yeah, what, I mean, so, I think oh, sorry... Go ahead, Justin. Sorry. No, 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 Karen. No, I think what I, I, we were just discussing uh, prior to the big Dragon Slayer debate um, was the fact that 1981 is is just so full of stuff, and uh, in a way, it's like it, this is the where the studios had finally kind of locked step with the the effects of Star Wars coming out and being this monster smash that now the studios have all got their plans and they're all going to try and crack that fantasy, science fiction, horror nut. Um, yeah, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, one of the things that is notably missing from uh, the the list of movies is any great action movies in 1981. Um, what? Unless I'm missing something. Uh, isn't this the year of uh, Raiders Lost Ark? Well, yeah, but... 
It's still fantasy, though, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's action, obviously, but it's... A few ways only, James Bond movie. Yes, you've got a James Bond movie, so that's fine. Yeah, James Bond is... uh... You've got Road Warrior... Um, I think Leo's talking about his maybe contemporary films. Well, um, oh. I think I think what you've put your finger on there, Ian, is we've got what um, from the seventies, leading on from that seventies thing uh, of what action movies were. We've got you know your Cannonball Run, that's a kind of seventies action comedy style yeah. thing, directed of course by Hal Needham of Smokey and the Bandit, starring Burt Reynolds of Smokey and the Bandit. Um, I think that's possibly why. I mean, the Cannonball Run is a fun little movie. Uh, sort of wacky races, but real. Um, but I think it kind of got a little bit looked down its nose at at the time because it was very much of the last gen. People were like, oh, that's so last decade. Come on. But in retrospect, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it's just what it is, you know. Uh, I, I think we can live in harmony with Cannonball Run fans. I think this animosity needs to end. <laughs> um, but I mean, James Bond is is fairly safe. Um, I think as well, the thing about it is that For Your Eyes only kind of, I wouldn't want to say rescues, because I don't think it needs the franchise to <laughs> rescue it. Well, demonstrably not. I think, I think what, what James Bond came back down to earth, I think, is yes, what happened in that's, Your that's Eyes. It. They, said that they did Moonraker, and they were like, that didn't really work as well as we thought it might, so let's do something a little bit more, you know, so that worked. Um, but then, I mean, yeah, what's really significant is the fact that you don't have anything uh, that that kind of is the equivalent of something like Dirty Harry? There is no. It's not, it's not very gritty, is it? It's all very shiny and and fun and generally quite upbeat, I suppose. Well, what was the zeitgeist in the early nineteen eighties? And what you know, what was the kind of world was it? It was was it was it you know. In Britain, it was probably failing economic policies because that's that's always the cultural background we live in. But, um, I, think that, I think that more than anything else, um, the 1980s, well, there were a couple of things going off in 1981. One was, obviously, as we previously discussed, um, the, the Star Wars thing had now kicked in. I mean, it, it's four years later, yeah. but that's how long it takes for a lumbering commercial behemoth like a film studio to change its direction and its focus that much. But then the second thing that's going off is that people are getting video recorders in their house. Um, And I think, you know, there's this thing of we want to put stuff on the cinema screen that's going to get people out from in front of their television and make them really want to go yeah. You know, so, so what, escapism, you think, is, is the yeah, order I mean, of the day? You always get escapism whenever you've got a period which has been kind of, you know, economically down and all these kind of things going on. And then the late seventies, of course, were definitely that. So absolutely, and the eighties, you know, is like, you know, the rise of the kind of capitalism and and a, and getting away from that, and everyone is wanting to aspire to things. And so it's still early 80s. People want to escape from all of that. They want to start something new and bright and shiny and positive and, you know, expensive, you know, spectacle. Um, and this is the point where, you know, because video has come out, uh, I mean, I think it's very easy 
these days to see you know you've got things these days where people are like yeah we're going to do this simultaneous release it's going to have a limited run in cinemas but we're also going to launch it on itunes for download and we're going to put the dvd out all on the same day that and that you know that's what how we, we experience you know if a film hasn't come out on dvd three months after it's been in the cinema you're like oh where is it why haven't they released it yet you know there's all of that in 1981 the studios were like, well, you can have a VCR in your house. You just go ahead, Mr. Pirate, but we're yeah. not putting any of our movies on that little demon box you have sat in the corner. Yeah. At which point, a bunch of independent studios went, oh, all right, then we will. And they started churning all this, you know, stuff out, stuff that used to be in the grindhouse, moved on to the VCR box. So you had all these made-for-video things. So well, really, direct-to-video. Yeah, direct-to-video. And although that became an insult over time, direct-to-video at the mo at the beginning was a market. It was like, well, the studios won't put their movies on video, so they have people have video machines. Let's put something out that will go straight onto the video machine. And so that's what they did. And so, in a way, 1981 was the studios going, all right, this is what we can do. What can you do, Mr. Little have no budget straight to video people and it was like they were yeah it was almost he said segueing into a, talking about another movie a clash of the titans oh. uh, uh, once see. again once again my dad bought me the action figure <laughs> it, it, it's quite disturbing that that I, I still have somewhere in a box in an attic in swansea an action figure of the actor tim piggott smith who i've since met <laughs> You want to it's it's really odd. Is that in good condition, the action figure? Because that could be worth a fortune. I didn't even I've remember. I've got the shield because uh, my dad, the, the dad had the main, my dad, my brother had the main character, and I had the Tim Pickett Smith yeah. guy in armor character. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, it's in reason, it's in quite good condition. Quite, and, and my brother's one disappeared a long time ago in the mists of time. I, I think he gave it back. That at school. I don't remember that. Wow, that's pretty cool. I know. Um, I saw it as a kid. Uh, it was obviously quite scary in places. I think the Medusa, you can genuinely believe that her stare will turn you to stone. It's I think, a... It's a I, well, sorry, sorry. I yeah, think they, that they, um, what I... Uh, Clash of the Titans is kind of bittersweet because I think it represents, to me, like all of the stuff that, that Ray Harryhausen had done before. Yes, Absolutely. It represented like this summation of that. There was a lot of special effects in Clash of the Titans, and um, it, it was like this massive special effects fest. Um, and I think that the studio kind of wanted it to make enough money that then they could make another, you know, Clash of yeah. the Titans style movie. And really, after this, that's it. Clash of the Titans. That's the end of an era. Yeah, I can't think of another Harryhausen movie or classic. Uh, Harryhausen this is pretty movie. much the last one. Pretty much the last. One. Um, but and yet, it, I mean, you know, going out with a bang. I mean, it is huge. Yeah. It's a huge movie. It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It's, it's great. I, it's one of those films that I watch a lot, actually, over and over during my childhood. Um, I mean, looking at it now, you can kind of see some things that are a bit strange. You know, it's clearly been influenced by Star Wars. So you've got the robotic owl beeping and chirping. And uh, it's it's got that kind of mythic feel, obviously Star Wars has. Um, so, but I, yeah, I've got a soft spot for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like that's really an era ender. I mean, because we were talking 
1980 about, you know, going from this kind of mythic fantasy where, yes, this is Earth, but it's in the distant past, to, this isn't even Earth, this is some crazy, yes. weird world where, uh, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff happens. And so... so Mm-hmm. So, so you're you're kind of saying that you know Roy Harryhausen animatedly staggers into the 80s and hands over this beacon of progress to industrial light and magic and promptly stands still and never moves again. Uh, I, that's a very romantic way of putting it, but I'd say more. I don't know why. I, I, this is the thing. I in my head I can't see any business reason why they would stop making mythic fantasy and start making you know Conan-esque <laughs> fantasy at that stage, but that's simply what happened. Conan, Conan is mythic, isn't it? I mean, it's not... not like Earth yeah, but it's... What I mean is mythic as in myths of the, you know, Greek Greek gods and myths of the Norse gods and myths of, you know, whichever kind of gods you want, as well, opposed to myths of people who never existed in places that never were. Well, could you argue that they, they kind of done the normal yeah, ones? I mean, I, death, I, I, they've done I, I, Sinbad I don't, to I death. They've graded all the really yeah. decent stories. Well, I'm not sure about that. Sorry, Justin, you wanted to. Say. No, if you think about, it, they could have done. They could have carried on with mythic. You, you know, there aren't many. There aren't many kind of Viking mythology films like that. Fantasy things. They could have done that. They could have done more Sinbads. They, could, I mean, you know, it, 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 it is interesting. More Sinbads. Oh my god. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised, actually, when you say Sinbad, that we had all these Sinbad movies, you know, that ended in the late 1970s. And to this date, you know, in the age of CGI, we've managed yeah. a single Prince of Persia movie. And that's yeah. your lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I've got a big soft spot for that kind of fantasy. And, uh, they, yeah, they it's, t- it's neglecting. It's been neglected. They did attempt to relaunch Sinbad recently. Uh, it didn't go down too well, although it was a decent enough try. Was it a, but that was a, a TV reason for this? Is there a um, for, you know, because, you know, if you think about the things, it's quite fun, you know, the, the idea of the evil vizier and all that kind of stuff, uh, maybe it's just a bit kind of, you know, political correctness coming in going, do we really want to show this kind of, you know, maniacal, bearded, Arabian... Is maybe it's that, maybe there's a yeah, kind of slight If you worry. do it Sinbad, everybody's Arabian. So yes, the villain is necessarily yes, Arabian. It's like so Al- Aladdin's a Muslim, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You know what it would be like. Um, so, so yeah. So, I'm not wondering why it's not. It should be, but, you know. I think maybe it's because these fantasy films of the 80s are very upbeat. They're very light. They're fun. You've only got to compare Clash of the Titans 1981 to the recent uh, remakes, to see the kind of difference. And I think now, you know, things are much more kind of serious um, in terms of these films. I think there was a spirit in the 80s with Hawk the Slayer, with Dragon Slayer, and it goes through, you know, Kral, um, all these kind of things we're going to obviously touch on later. There was a spirit, those type of Lady Hawk, those kind of fil- films are, are very light, you know, fun kind of family well, you say they're very light, but wasn't it? Clash of the Titans is, is, I remember it being quite brutal and disturbing. It's people getting stung by giant scorpions. Really? It's men getting really? burned alive because they can't solve a riddle. Yeah, it's, it's giant, it's giant monsters. You know, it's like it's not. But, but, but when you know, I mean, that's actually quite frightening. Giant scorpions are quite terrifying when you're a kid. 
I don't know. I, 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 I never found any of that remotely frightening. I was just sat there in wonderment of all these. Well, incredible you're just creations. made of sterner stuff, I think, <laughs> well, is the answer. No, I think there is, a, no, no, there is a point at which, I think to a certain extent, you can ask, well, how, how do our you know, parents and stuff? I think parents as a whole were like, oh, this is a thing with giant scorpions and, you know, uh, giants and giant lizard monsters and what have you in it. It's nonsense that people yeah. believed that that was and nonsense, I, so you exactly. were not expected to be scared of it. My parents would never have stopped me. It's, 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 it's just disturbing more than scary. Because you're not likely to meet a giant scorpion, and I knew, I knew that as even as a kid. But as as a piece of fiction you're watching, and there's a giant scorpion that to deal with now, which does kill people. I believe it killed Tim Bigot Smith, as a matter of fact. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a very sensitive child, uh, Ian. Very sensitive. We're talking about how old was I in, in this year? Maybe we must be three or four or five. Oh, well, you see, that is the difference, though, I suppose. If you're seeing that that age, this, I can imagine emotionally it will probably have a more dramatic effect. By this stage, I'm 10, you know, so I'm not really going to be phased by monsters killing so, things. So people being turned uh, to stone at, at the gates of the Medusa, you like me, whatever. Uh, that was chilling. Right. I, I grant you that the Medusa was quite <laughs> scary. You know, in the same way that Daleks are scary and, you know, uh, but I would say, I mean, personally, my age, I don't think I would have found anything disturbing I mean, you know, spooky, scary, but it's light, you know, it's fun. It's not well, disturbed. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, having some kind of nervous breakdown kind of disturbed. I was just kind of like, well, that's unsettling. Uh, and when you're, when you're younger, you are, you do have to suspend. I think, even you might have that stuff, but in the end, you know, the guy gets the girl, you know, it's all very dramatic. You know, I think uh, thematically, yeah. it's just lighter. That, that's stuff. a kind of the end that comes with, with seeing a lot of. Um, when, when you're a kid, I mean, I don't think I ever thought, oh, they're going to lose this one. I think I ever seriously entertained that, but you're not really thinking that far ahead as a kid. You're very much more of the moment. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a very distressing thing that's going on, and it's going on now, and, and that's the thing. And I'm not, I'm not a person who says, you know, because I, I love Doctor Who, and I think Doctor Who should terrify children. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that children are terrified of weeping angels. Good! That's brilliant! <laughs> Um, I, I still don't believe that there was a tonal difference between 80s films of that type and more recent, you know, how yeah, we treat them. Definitely. Yeah. Start with a pregnant woman being locked in a metal box and said drifted sick. <laughs> well, that's just mythology <laughs> over here. At the other end of the, yeah, I mean, at the other end of the tonal scale, because they did try a little something that was maybe a little bit more, you know, viewed as, as you know, not for the whole family, yeah. with Excalibur. Excalibur yes. was supposed to be a oh, yes, mature and adult version of the Arthurian mythology uh, brought yes. to the, the screen with... Uh, well, yes, with... I can tell you a, funny, a brief funny story about this. At school, okay, so one of the one of the, uh, the English teachers said, yeah, I'm going to show Excalibur, you know, and we're all, you know, 13, 14 or something, forgetting about the beginning of Excalibur. Um, yeah. Where um, uh, there's a certain amount of rompy-pompy in armour and of which the uh, the teacher rapidly got up and went, oh, yes, actually, I think we're not going to watch this instead, and <laughs> jumped in front of the TV. <laughs> so, yeah, he does have adult themes, actually. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I'm rather I'm rather keen on Excalibur, personally. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely... I mean, it's, it's the, the history, you know... introduced kind of a lot of love and gore and stuff into the genre, which, you know, it, it did change things a bit. 
people, um, you know, moan about the amount of, you know, remakes and, uh, and reboots and all these things. In fact, uh, in our show, news show prior to 1980, we moaned a lot about Robocop getting remade. But sometimes yeah. you look at all this source material to be plundered and you think, why haven't they done it? It's like King Arthur has never had a very good, you know, relationship with the cinema, if you think about it. You know, like they've never really taken it seriously. I always say that, I mean, this might be to do with, if you think of Excalibur, that's a British movie, right? With British money, as far as I understand it. Yeah. Um, and um, a recent films that have kind of touched on this haven't been. And I think there is an understanding there. You know, there is a certain approach to kind of fantasy, uh, you know, um, and I think maybe it's just that the the kind of American money, the directors don't quite get, you know, what it is that makes that what you should concentrate on in an Arthurian thing. I think it's not quite getting the property, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, they, come, they come in and go, well, fundamentally, I think the story of King Arthur is a love story. No. Exactly. But the thing is, we've had lots of Robin Hoods over the years. That's, I mean, you All know. of them have been great, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, Let's be people, honest. Well, I or think the, the seminal Robin Hood text, yes, is definitely, um, I mean, you know, it's a split between the Errol Flynn Robin Hood and exactly. the Kevin Costner Robin Hood. Those are the two Robin Hoods that people kind of look to. The one I actually heard was the other one they made at the time of Kevin Costner. The, uh, I forget the name of it now. Um, there was a, a, another one, wasn't there? There was one with yeah. Patrick Bergen, yes. Well remembered. Which I liked, but, um, but yeah. But, but, well, the archetypal 80s um, Robin Hood for me was the uh, ITV series, Robin oh, and Sherwood. Yes, very much so. That had a lot of the kind of Celtic mythology... And mm. kind of spirituality, which yeah, I think, an Arthurian mythology in one episode, an Arthurian, which yeah, very good, very good series. But then we talk about all those different takes on Robin Hood, and it's like you look at King Arthur, and and it's like, I, I mean, I suppose you can numerically on your fingers say, oh well, there's you know that, and then there's the Clive Owen King Arthur, and then there's uh, Merlin the series, yeah. and then there was, I think it was called Camelot, the other one, or it might be yeah. called, yeah, that. And you look at all those, it's like, yeah, but none of them really get the point. Every last one of them, I, I this think, is I think, the middle of it. I think we're using for being Oh, and everybody's talking at once. Sorry, Sorry. Ian. Yes. Well, I think the reason that Robin Hood is more adaptable for Hollywood is because Robin Hood is, is a rebel, he's an outcast, he's a renegade. So it's the underdog versus the Nazi sheriff. Whereas King Arthur is the authority. So essentially he's putting, he's putting down a rebellion and losing. It's the story of King Arthur at the end, end of the story. Um, yeah, and uh, sorry, Justin? You're... No, I, I was just going to say, I always go back to, you know, all, all the things they try and make, but I always go back to Excalibur. There is something about that that just resonates in me in terms of the mythology. You know, there's different ways to do it, but it was done with a particularly, you know, it wasn't, this wasn't a light family fun thing, just using these names. You know, it's attempting to do something, you know, to try and capture some of the kind of darkness and the unpleasantness that it would have been like at that time. And I, I think that's why I always go back to it, because I, everything else I've seen since just makes light of it. Well, you know, generally, it doesn't have that feel, you know, of kind of sinisterness. You know, Merlin is not a kind of white-bearded Gandalf-like figure. 
Uh, yeah, the Clive Owen one is very interesting. Maybe we'll talk about it at the time. Maybe say very interesting. It's a very boring movie, but it's yeah, I, I yeah, it, it's okay. it's that thing of going, hey, here's a t-. I mean, this is a thing that's actually true of all Arthurian mythology. Um, is that every time someone comes to King Arthur, they go, hey, how about this twist on Arthur? And I would say, well, why not? Not why would could the twist not be? We're not going to do a twist. We're just going to do it as it is. Um, and people don't really go for that. Um, to move on to something completely different. Well, I think, oh, sorry, Ian. No, no, I was going to say, I think it's because it, the, I think it's because Renaissance Fair is somewhat hijacked the kind of Camelot setting. I think I think that's perhaps a reason why it's considered a bit kind of dull and dusted. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, to move on to something completely different, uh, Time Bandits is a oh, different that's... type of fantasy altogether <laughs> that came out in 1981. Yeah, uh, no, I love Time Bandits. genius that is Terry Gilliam. And I think this shows you when, you know, we talk about this light, fun, family, you know, kind of fantasy stuff, but we don't get that quite with Time Bandits. It's just the whole thing about the, the boy's wall suddenly moves and it becomes an endless corridor. And that's just kind of how my mind works yeah. when, I was, when I was a kid. It just really tapped brilliantly. I mean, I didn't get any of the history when I was a kid or the relevance of, of these things. But it, just, just kind of the, the imagination of the, these mysterious black doors that could, would appear and take you somewhere else yeah. was just, yes, this is, this is, this is, you've hit the button here. Sort of surrealism of the one. This is Gilliam really, really getting, you know, having fun, letting letting his imagination go crazy. I think it's strange because the uh, the whole kind of invisible barrier thing was a workaround when a scene failed, but it's it's right. one of the most memorable visual sequences in the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the weird thing, the weird thing as well is that it's one of those things where <clears throat> what saves it. Because if you give this to a lot of, if you give that setup to a lot of people, where you have a map of time and people running away from, you know, essentially God who has the the, the time and the stuff, you, you kind of think, well, how are you going to get yourself out of this? Because you've you've promised a lot for the end of this movie, I mean, and it gets away with it because Terry Gilliam is so odd. Yeah, like you get through to the end, you're like. That was strange. Uh, <laughs> well, they they, they promised for it was it was all the dream, uh, and which well, should be the ultimate cop out ever. But at, at, at the same time, because uh, the, everything he's experienced is mirrored by what's in his room, it, it, it kind of gets away with it. Almost like he did fall into a separate universe for a short while. But then, but then it, it validates. It, I don't know. Yeah, well, then, then it goes. Well, but it wasn't. But it, you know, and that's the point. The point is that it's skipping around and playing with you. As an audience, I mean, it ends quite bleakly with his parents being oh, evaporated right before his yeah. eyes. Yeah, but yeah, then they're proved to be right, you know, not exactly uh, great parents. So there's a part yeah, of that so, you go, yeah. yeah I, I, like, I used to tell myself he later got adopted by a farm and exactly. or something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's an interesting film. It's got a lot of light notes, and then it's got some really, you know, satirical kind of nasty. You know, the kind of god is really—he's not pleasant in this film. <laughs> you know, who are these? You're a very untidy boy. What is your name? <laughs> so uh, yeah, you know, again, a great. You know, I think it's a, a great uh, imaginative film. Uh, add, adds to that kind of craziness, um, and you know, it's it's what Gilling was is best at doing, really. So uh, yeah, so. I was obsessed about the map for years. 
Yes, I think that I'm of it now, and I'm tempted to get it it's on canvas. It's like, oh my god, I'm going this. I think that uh, Time Bandits is kind of one of those things where really, um, it's obviously it was in development in the 70s, and it is this relic of psychedelia. Yeah. But it does capture that thing that in the 80s psychedelia was a kind of relic. It was something you put on pencil cases and. You know, you made crazy coloured rubbers and, you know, suddenly colourful became a product. And uh, Time Bandit simultaneously does that and reacts against the fact that that's, you know, Gilliam knows what's going to happen to a movie when yeah. it's made. So he's kind of trying to undermine that even as he's making the movie. Um, well, it, 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 it undermines heroes throughout the movie and in the end it undermines God, you know. Yeah. Uh, in a, not a, in a similar uh, vein in terms of the sort of uh, harking back to things of the past, recent past, and then making them more 80s. Uh, heavy Metal, uh, the adaptation, the animated adaptation of the uh, popular mature themed comic book. Uh, it is. It's funny, isn't it, that it's 80s? Because it really feels very 70s, that film. To me, anyway. Well it, well, it is. It's a sort of tribute to sort of that kind of 70s underground. I didn't see, I didn't see heavy metal until probably late 80s, I think. Uh, I guess maybe because it's, it's, quite, it's quite adult in its thing. There's a lot of kind of cartoon nudity and, you know, uh, and people dying in hideous kind of disintegrating ways and things. Well, it's, it's, simul- it's a- simultaneously, quote-unquote, adult and quote-unquote juvenile at the same yes. time. Yes. Um, it's an interesting, it's a, you know, it's a complete hodgepodge of stuff, though. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lots of uh, tenuously linked stories, um, obviously with different animators, so there's lots of different styles. Um, I mean, it's, it's a strange beast, I have to say. It's kind of like some of the stuff I like and some of the stuff is, is you know, blatantly exploitational and, and, and doesn't sit quite well in one modern viewing, really. Also, uh, for a film called Heavy Metal, the, uh, the music of it is almost universally soft rock. So, yeah. you know, it's not, not really uh, very, you know, there's a bit of heavy metal in there, a little bit. But it, it kind of ranges all over the place. Uh, that's your thing. I mean, yeah, it's it's a, it's an it's, it stands out as an animated film. There's not many films really are quite like uh, heavy metal, but it's yeah, it's it's interesting. I've kind of I I've got affection for it, but some of the stuff is you know has is dated horribly and and kind of yeah. Kind well, it's, of that, it's, that, it's that spirit of um, it's that spirit of uh, experimentation at the beginning yeah. of the 1980s, where this was one of the things that didn't. You know, people didn't run with it, so it, it, it didn't kind of happen, really. But, it, you know, it, it's good to note that it's there. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, you know, in a similar... Fa- I mean, you know, because there are things that did take off brief... I mean, some of them are very briefly. I'm looking at uh, Mad Max 2, uh, known as The Road Warrior in the United States, because although in Australia it was Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, in the States they'd never had Mad Max so they just called it the Road Warrior, and it was meant to be standalone. Um, but I think, oh, I think in the UK we did get them in the right order because, of course, yeah. Commonwealth and everything. Yeah. Um, and that kind of spawned a brief vogue for, you know, people in leather in quarries with. And know. I think it's I think it's an interesting film. This I think this really highlights the change in the eighties 
Because if you compared this to Mad Max, you know, mm. which is much more bleaker affair, it's much, you know, this is now, it's more of the imagination coming into it. This is now, you know, uh, kind of a fa- effectively a fantasy environment, really. Uh, to a certain extent, though, I think that Mad Max 2 is a result of the fact that Mad Max made bank and the makers were like, great, now we can make the film we wanted to make in the first place. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, yeah, possibly. But I mean, I think Mad Max is, is still pretty much a 70s film. The look of it, the feel of it. Well, it, it's much more of a, I mean, it's amazing how little Max says in that film. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's also much more of a character piece. It's in many yeah. ways a smaller movie than Mad Max is. Yes. Uh, and and it's kind of like it, this is how I feel a good sequel should be approached. P- you know, people rack their minds for ages about how to do a Robocop sequel. I was like, well, you just go smaller and make a really decent character piece about him doing something. I think uh, uh, Mad Max, yeah, Mad Max Two is fam- was famous at the time, probably still is a bit famous for having something like 182 lines of dialogue. That's all. That <laughs> is um, wow. so it's, it's very nearly a silent movie. Uh, except there's a lot of engines. It's, it's really strange because, you know, he, he, Mad Max, you know, he, he, spoilers, he's, he loses his family in the first movie, and quite late in the, in the first movie, and then immediately claims vengeance over the people who did it, and he's a burnt-out shell of, of a wandering loner who doesn't want to be involved with anyone in the second movie. And it's quite strange when the third one comes along and Hollywood has got involved. Max has transformed into what I call, like, Hollywood Max, where yeah. he's, like, this super ace fighter, he's got quips... You know, you know they, they can throw him in the ring with, with Blaster, and they just know he's going to win the fight somehow. It was like you would not you would not assume this at all with the Max from the second movie. You'd yeah. think he'd probably get pasted because he's, he's good with a gun in his car. Well, I mean, the thing about that is though, because what that really does is it, it synthesizes Mad Max with uh, another film released in 1981, Escape from New York, and Snake Plissken, um, who was uh, you know, I mean, they're very similar characters, Snake Plissken. Yeah. Max Rakotansky. Um, they're both sort of doer, like miserable, cynical, anti-heroes. Yep. So, you know, but Snake Plissken already has that American sensibility right at the beginning where he would shoot things back at people, you know, they'd say something and he'd make a, you know, a wry quip about it. And that, you know, so, I mean, essentially all that is is a synthesis of those two ideas because after Escape from New York uh, Snake Plissken went quiet for a long time and I wish he'd stayed quiet because <laughs> when he came back mm. <laughs> um, I, actually I think that um, the problem with Escape from LA uh, is that one I mean they kind of tried to make it a piece with Escape from New York but the other thing was they were leading into uh, as is known um, Escape from Earth which was yeah. the the last in the trilogy, and yeah. so, I mean, I watched it recently. There's nothing per se. It was wrong for the time that it was made. I think that's, mm. I think that's the problem. I think it wasn't, and it also, I rarely say this about films, but that did need more budget. Escape from LA. I think the strength of Escape <clears> from New York works because it's very gritty. It's all this kind of fantastic urban New York setting uh, at night. Um, it's incredibly atmospheric. Um, and it works, you know, it doesn't need a big budget. Um, I think it's also the fact that LA, it's just so much, 
exactly the same premise as Escape from New York. And I, it yeah. kind of works against me that he's given yet another thing that's going to kill him in a set amount of time and is put in a, in a, in a walled-off American city uh, to, to go do his thing for the government or whatever it was. I forget who he was working for in the second movie, actually. But, but it was just like, uh, you should have done something else in this world, in this universe, mm. than, than just kind of photocopy. You know, this time it's in LA. It's, it's pretty much their yeah. innovation. Well, it's some like, nice ideas. There are some nice ideas, some little satires on LA culture, um, but it just doesn't. I, personally, it doesn't hold together at all as well as Escape from New York. I, mean, it, it's like, I think you're quite. If it had come out in 1984, I think it would have been fine. It would, both of them would have been seen as <clears throat> a good classic double feature. Uh, but it's it's the I think it's the, because it came out in the nineties, didn't it? Escape yeah, ninety one or something. Yeah, it's, it's a just it's just a bit too long, and suddenly Snake Plissken is he ditches his combat gear, combat trousers for leather, and it, it's something. Like, yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, it, I but, think yeah, that, back, back to oh. I mean, back to New York. New York is, yes. uh, you know, it, it's where. I mean, this is the thing. John Carpenter, we've we've mentioned several times because you know he does Halloween and that like wow, crazy everybody you know goes for. And in fact, Halloween two, not directed as far as I know by John Carpenter, comes out in 1981. Um, and so yeah, Halloween really sets the you note. Know, then in between, he makes The Fog, which is very old school and people aren't really that into it. And then he comes in, out with Escape, you know, Escape from New York, and that's people are like. I mean, I don't think people went nuts for it straight away. It kind of grew. It was a growing. Yeah, I think the video. The video is like uh, it's, it's one of the first generation of movies that where really found a found a home in people's front rooms, uh, or or something you taped off television and watched. Uh, and I think they I think they enjoyed making it because I don't think it would have come back to do LA after so much time. There was a kind of feeling about it of like, yeah, I really enjoyed making that film. People remember it really well. That's good enough one. I'm really excited about this. Um, just didn't quite have the story down. Yeah, he's a great, he's a great character, um, yeah. and it's a shame that he didn't have a better vehicle to come back in. Really, I think, uh, I think it's unfortunately John. Well, in my opinion, John Carpenter is a kind of bit of a hidden misdirector. Sometimes he produces genius, and other times he produces just dross. Yes, that I is. Think on, on the sequel front, on that, I think that wasn't his finest hour. I think he wasn't. He was having an off day. Um, that was one of his not so good movies. Um, on on reverse of that, I mean, I mean to be fair, this this year was we've we've now we've got kind of gone through that kind of post-apocalyptic, and that's where our action. I mean, when I say there's no sequel to to or not sequel but spiritual successor to Dirty Harry, Snake Plissken is technically it. But like you say, with the Star Wars influence, they've moved it into a sort of sci-fi fantasy. You know, I mean, this is the era of Judge Dredd as well, first coming out in 2000 AD. So they've moved that kind of gritty character into this crazy, campy science fiction universe. On the other hand, I mean, I'm just looking at the list again, and the amount of things that they tried to do with horror in this year is is truly bewildering. We have, uh, at one and the same time, American Werewolf in London, The Entity, uh, The Evil Dead, um, da, 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 Halloween 2, uh, The Howling, uh, Inseminoid, um, da, 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 and we've got Omen 3, The Final Conflict, um, and Scanners, uh, and Wolfram, <laughs> all in the same year. 
which wow. is like, I mean, if you're a horror fan, you certainly wouldn't complain about the lack of variety. No. Again, uh, it's, it's, it's carrying on, though, this thing of kind of, you know, imagination. It's a lot of different ideas coming, a lot of explosion of, you know, stuff that it's not just a rehashing. It's new areas like, you know, scanners or whatever, that kind of psychic thing. And then you've got, you know, traditional supernatural uh, critters. Um, you've got kind of weird... It's, it's, American it's, Wolf in London. Yes, which is cute. You know, the, is that? Would you say that's the first horror comedy? Um, well, it depends I mean, in which order. Because the Evil no. Dead, obviously, uh, is very much a Three Stooges I, I, movie. And at that time as well, which it is as well. That, that's in the same bracket. I mean, yeah. is this the first time we see that kind of direction? Or well, is I remember, Leo, during our university days, because you picked out... When you spoke about this film, you said it's not really a horror film, it's a contemporary fantasy on the basis there's someone here to explain to him what the rules are of, of, of what's going on. Um Yes, American Werewolf in London has the well. I mean, you know, what people kind of forget about uh, Werewolf if they haven't seen it in a while is that there's a ghost. Well, there are several ghosts in it. The werewolf yep. gets hit, haunted by the the souls of the people it's killed. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, there's Griffin Dunn uh, slowly de- decomposing in a humorous fashion throughout yep. the movie. Um, and that's yeah, that kind of changes the way it's not just a werewolf movie. Um, and yeah, you know, the actual, that was, that's a werewolf itself is played straight. The actual monster is, is done. Well, you know, that the the transformation scene is you know one of those game changers in movie history. That was a very that physical effect, you know, was incredible. So you know, it's absolutely a horror film. That no one seen anything like that before. You know, up to that point, you know, if you had a Wolfman or something, you just, you know, you'd have a bit of your know, furry-faced guy, and that was, a, you know, that was a proper transformation. So it was absolutely serious, but on the other side of it, it is, you know, it is very funny. Some of some some stuff is happening. It's the first time I could think of the werewolf being treated as a beast more than more than a man. And a man with a furry face. Yeah, it's effects, isn't it? I mean, you know, effects are driving that now. Physically, they can they stop. You know they're working out how to do these things. I think um, I think the other thing that's notable there is actually American Wolf in London paves the way for um, Sue's one of Sue's top five of the 1980s. That is the Lost Boys, because it it is the first time I think where they mesh, you know, domestic comedy because there's a bit where you know the Nazis come into their their home uh, in his dream and stuff like that. They yeah. mesh. This kind of oh, and we're making a joke, and we're just you know fooling around, and it's a comedy, and then oh, horror! You know what I mean? And and it, it, tonally, they're very similar in that respect of just you know at the beginning when they're backpacking around, they're you know talking about nonsense, and then suddenly wolves and stuff. You know, it, that's that's something that really hadn't you know if it's a horror movie. People didn't really talk about all dialogue that was not related to the monster previous to this was all about, ah, I've just had a call from the lawyer. I must go up to that abandoned house that my aunt owned. You know, it's all expository. Whereas in this, it had throwaway lines that were nothing to do with either horror or the plot. It was all about jokes. And that, you know, was new. Hmm. So, yeah, that's, uh, um, and, 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 you know, on another side of that coin, the Evil Dead, absolutely. Which, uh, yeah. 
which was just um, very heavily influenced by, as we know, the Three Stooges. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, The Evil Dead has that thing of being the movie they made because that's what the money they had was. And then when he made, went on to make The Evil Dead 2, that was the movie he would have made if he'd have had the money when he made the first one. Yeah. Um, and yet they're both seen as standing on their own, you know. Well, the big, the big joke is that Ash does in fact go back to the cabin a few years later. He's that, he's that sort of a person with a different girlfriend. <laughs> I, I always I always saw the first part of The Evil Dead 2 as being, oh, well, we have to get to the point where the camera comes through the cabin and hits him in the face. So rather than do the whole of the first movie, we'll do this cut-down version of the first movie, and then we pick up from that point. So you could edit together, you know, Evil Dead, and then that shot where the camera hits Bruce Campbell in the face, and then pick up Evil Dead 2 from that point. And that's, you know, quote-unquote, the real movie. The rest of it is just there because that's not the way that it can work. You can't have a three-hour evil Sumerian spirit zombie movie. You can't do it. It's, it's quite interesting that it, it is a film. I mean, it's, it's a film that was. It's, it's, there's no way this could start off, start life as a script. It kind of has to start life as a, like the special effects guy going, well, "We can do this, and we can do that," and they're having a really good actor. <laughs> willing, willing to hit himself in the head with a broom for, for hours on end, uh, and just going for it, and just just having a joy of the moment kind of thing going on. Because you know, it's it's a guy on his own in a cabin fighting I mean, with I... himself and special effects. Well, that's Evil Dead Two, which we'll come to later. But yes, I mean, Evil, Evil Dead is very. Well, I much think there is... Sorry, Justin. There is a sense at this time. It's like everyone's got a brand new toy box. And people are just having fun with what they can do, you know. Um, up to this point, effects and t technology has been limited, but people are just going, you know what, we can explode someone's head, let's do that. Or we can have someone turn into a wolf. Or we can, you know, have someone cut off their arm with a chainsaw and everything else. People are just having fun with it. Well, I mean, I think that the exception there, I mean, you talk about the exploding head, which is obviously the... Uh seen that everyone scanners. remembers from Scanners. But David Cronenberg is a guy who doesn't sit... I mean, Sam Raimi very much went, oh, and then we want this to happen, it'll be cool, because this will happen, and, you know, he's got that visual idea. And David Cronenberg has a vision, but his conceptual idea is, you know, Scanners is about people being in each other's minds and the transfer of consciousness. He's not really, you know, and he makes things happen because they have to happen. Because well, he's always kind of had that element of body shock, though, hasn't he? Yes, make. definitely. Very much so. Um, and what's interesting about it is we talk about American Werewolf in London and we talk about Evil Dead and we talk about uh, Scanners. And that's just, you know, these are the films that people remember from 1981, the horror. But when I went through the list, we've got things like Halloween 2, which is like, oh, well, it's Halloween 2. It happens. Um, and uh, you've got The Howling, um, which is certainly, you know, worthwhile. Yeah. But these are more yeah. traditional. And then you, you in, in, nestled in there right at the bottom is uh, Hell Night, where uh, Linda Blair was trying to kickstart her career post-Exorcist uh, in what has to be one of the most pedestrian slasher movies ever made. You know, there's a lot to watch in horror, but it's weird that all the stuff that's like sequels or spiritual sequels or attempts to extend someone's career beyond that one movie that they made once, they all kind of people don't really remember them. Whereas what people remember is all the new stuff that did crazy stuff that was yeah. completely out there. Um, yeah. 
So we're, we're coming to the end of 1981 now. Uh, I feel that there are a, few, a couple of items that we need to sort of mop up um, before we can say that we've really done it. I mean, we didn't even really talk about Your Eyes Only, but is this because it's like one of them, you know, it's just, it's a James Bond movie. I, I don't think with we, like, we don't need to go into a huge amount of detail. For, we have talked about James Bond in the past. I think we need, don't need to go into a huge amount of detail about it. I think we should have a quick word about Raiders. I don't even want to say anything about Looker, Lookers. Looker, uh, yes, the, um, the, that's uh, one of the. It's notable. I, isn't I, I, it's I, I haven't seen. Yes, yeah, the one with the, 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 the some scientists. Well, Michael Crichton, of course, has a problem or had a problem up until Jurassic Park, in which his career was like. Sometimes I write something like Westworld, which is very science fictiony, and sometimes I write something more like Looker, which is a, a sort of techno thriller about someone inventing a gun which when you flash it in people's eyes it gives them a blackout for like 20 minutes or something and then stuff happens and the thriller all the, the, this thriller revolves around the fact that people miss have gaps of time um, and so they come to and they you know they realize that someone has done something while they've been zoned out and you know it's all about that thing of all blackouts and it's, it's a much more low key than something like westworld and of course michael crichton you know everyone knows he wrote jurassic park and jurassic park too people kind of forget that he wrote rising sun and disclosure and things like that you know he's, he he doesn't stick to one genre and until he was michael crichton author of jurassic park he wrote all these things and nobody even knew he'd written them you know, until you look back on it and go, oh, he wrote that, did he? So, uh, yeah, so that's what Looker is. Uh, I, need to, I need to watch that. I've never heard of that film, I'm afraid to say. Um, so, it's yeah, it's, it's, isn't, it also, it, it's, isn't it also about computer effects because they can now just digitally capture people so they don't need the original actors anymore? I think you might have been a bit, that's a little bit ahead of its time. Um, but uh, they might have used a computer for something, but uh, as, as far as I recall, the special effect was a couple of frames of white. I've got a page. Yes, yes, but it's actually it's wrong when they have the, the virtual studio. I'm looking at a page here, and it says that it did use computer-generated imagery prior to, so it's the first one really prior to Tron. They used, obviously used it. Um, oh, that's right. Um, so actually, but it did. So it did, it did have some stuff in it. So I will investigate this. Um, but yes, so that, that, that's definitely something that uh, requires a mention. Um, and like you said, yes, Raiders, we haven't even... I mean, the point is that we are intending at yeah. some point to uh, record or, in fact, re-record our special about the Indiana Jones franchise uh, because the first time is lost to the mists of... Uh, my the first husband. time was Tom Selleck, but now we're going on to the Harrison Ford. <laughs> um, so, you know, Raiders sits exactly what we've been talking about, you know, in terms of... Uh, imagination, action, adventure, light, you know, and, you know, it's 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 obviously uh, due as well, like success, to Harrison Ford, who, you know, is an incredibly charismatic presence on screen if he's if he's if he's allowed to have fun. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's very much product of that. It's, you know, awesome. But we'll be talking about this in depth, but uh, we will be yes. talking about it in depth. It's and important. It, I think Indiana Jones in particular lays the groundwork because it's very much a this is a film about a guy and that's why it's well it was originally just called Raiders of the Lost Ark it only later became Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark but the, the fact is that you know Indiana Jones is the guy he's the character he's the center of the movie and um I would argue that this is what 
leads to in the end people cracking the nut of you know it took them a very long time you know 20 22 years odd yeah. but until they really cracked this with superheroes like the fact that it had to be about a personality a character because i think that filmmakers and parents and everybody else viewed superheroes as oh well it's all you know colorful costumes and fighting and and yeah. it, it, it never really worked it never worked until they said, no, we've got to put a person at the centre of this. And an example of, of a, an, an early attempt at a superhero movie, and a great place to leave, I think, on, on this, is uh, Condor Man. Uh, <laughs> I, I really liked Condor Man as a kid, but I think that's probably because I was squarely in the target audience at the time. Yeah. I, I think, the only thing I remember about Condor Man is I quite liked the car in it, and it came out from, down from under the truck. And that's probably about it. The actual, the rest of it was kind of a bit silly, and you know. Well, the, the it, is, it is. It, it is terribly uh, silly. He's an interesting character, you know. He's a he's a comic artist, right? And he, uh, so you know, he's not your traditional superhero. Uh, but um, you know, well, I seem to recall like he's needed for a mission or something because of, because of some contrived reason. And basically, he's like, well, here's my list of demands. I want a car that turns into a plane yeah. that turns into a. It's a it's a film that sort of apologizes for itself it kind of goes here i am sorry because the way yeah. they marketed it was like oh condor man and they kept showing the clip of the car coming out from under the van and you know the big yeah. condor wings and all the special effects and stuff but then when you actually saw the film the film was going oh yeah but really he's just a nerdy comic That's book right. guy and well, well it is <clears throat> he's played by michael crawford you, you would you wouldn't at the time you would not cast him as a superhero he's most famous for frank spencer Exactly. Uh, but the thing about him is that, as we know from his later career in musicals, he has that versatility. He can both. We, we be know that now, but it was not known at the time. Michael Crawford was Frank Spencer. He was who were uh, Betty, and it, very clever physical comedy actor. No doubt about it whatsoever. Oh, yeah, but, he was hello, not a superhero character. But yeah, you know, physically, you know, he's not what you would expect uh, no. for that type of role. But clearly, I mean, he must have done a screen test and they saw in him that he could do both the bit where he was a bumbling comic book artist and then later on he could transform into this hero. I mean, the only other sort of acting transformation where there is no special effects involved, just a sort of the actor themselves changes personality as the movie goes on, that I remember, is, is a Cypher with Jeremy Northam, where at the beginning he's an awkward nerdy businessman and by the <laughs> end he's James Bond uh, Michael Crawford is he's very good at getting the audience to be sympathetic with him but he's up against yeah. Oliver Reed and Ol Oliver Reed I'm... being villain just, it's, it's, it's quite odd I... you know the thing is Condor Man is a Disney film you mm. know and it is aimed at a younger audience than would normally read comics okay so I think that you know you're not That's trying to make you're not trying to make this typical it's it's another it's another it's another i mean some people may well you know rave this film but I, to me it's it's firmly what we talked about already about disney in that trying to tackle a market that they're not really comfortable with well, so i think what you have is you have the elements you know the guy in the suit with the wings and the and the james bond type kind of car thing and all that kind of stuff but the rest of it doesn't quite hang together well the interesting thing about it is that that apologetic frame framing script with yeah. the comic book artist and all of this kind of stuff, is almost like, you know, the writer was kind of like, 
well, I know that we've got some good people signed on for this script, and yeah. we've got a treatment here, and I just want to give them something to do that isn't just messing about well, with yellow cars and big wings it, and all that. It makes, me, it makes me wonder how much it changed in development. As it, as it, I don't know if this was like, it came out exactly as it was intended. Well, the other thing is, if you remember, it could have well have started out. I mean, we know famously that Ghostbusters started out in a completely different format, it, even a sort of, I think it was a Wild West format, um, and then and then they changed it until it became what it is in 1984. Well, I think I thought the premise of Ghostbusters was pretty much always ghost. It's a janitor. It's the janitor who takes away the ghosts. Yeah, but they, the the whole premise. I mean, originally it was Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, and Bill Murray wasn't involved. They weren't professors. They didn't have you know, and they it, it completely changed. And I'm wondering to what extent. Um, Flash Gordon in 1980 made it, you know that Condor Man thing we were going to do where it was going to be silly and campy and have, you know, this guy. We've just seen Flash Gordon. That's not going to fly, uh, not going to fly, <laughs> so to speak. So let's change it. And that, you know, that kind of encroached and, and things like that. So yeah, I mean, they, they, an interesting thought. Uh, if people have their own thoughts about uh, Condor Man or, or indeed any of the other things that we've discussed in our 1981 podcast, where might they go to let us know that they're discussing those things, Ian? Well, a good place to go might be our Facebook page. You can find us, of course, on Facebook, and that's Revenge of the 80s Kids. That's 80s as in numbers, so 80s Kids. Please go there. Please like, subscribe. We put up our podcast there. We put up links that interest us there. Occasionally discussions happen. Please spread the word. We want more people to like our page and be part of our thriving thriving community well we have to have a thriving community uh, meanwhile you can also find our podcasts directly on the podomatic.com website under 80s kids and that's 80s as in letters so that's e-i-g-h-t-i-e-s kids.podomatic.com please go there please subscribe to our podcast through your podcast aggregator of your choice or download directly if that's your thing also you can leave comments there as well and um, yes uh, Leo you also inhabit other parts of the internet though don't you Yes, I do. LeoStableford.blogspot.com is another place you can find the podcast at the moment. Um, <clears throat> and in theory, if anything else interesting happens in my world, you'll find it there. Unless, of course, the interesting thing that happens is that I write a fairy tale which goes up on a Sunday. In which case, you can find that at BridgetownTales.blogspot.com. Occasionally illustrated by Justin, uh, who, who's currently uh, working... And you can find my work if you wish to. Yes, you uh, can find... Yes, you can find your work, sorry, where? Sorry, uh, find me on Demon Art under Justin Wyatt. So, yes. W-Y-A-T-T, so, you will find me there. <clears throat> so you can find us in many places across the internet. I think if I was going to offer a, a preference, I would prefer that people go to the Facebook page and like us, because we just want to know, you know, who's liking us and what's going on. Um, but obviously subscriptions are also good to the podcast. But we're, you know, you can download it, you can stream it, however you want to get it. Um, and that sort of wraps up 1981. Um, and, and I would therefore urge people, you know, who are deeply interested in, in uh, film and stuff during the 80s to run along and like us on Facebook. Because we've only got eight more years left and then you'll have run out of 80s. And we'll have to, you'll have to be 90s instead. And, you know, uh, I've already looked at that list and trust me, it's not as interesting. <laughs> The problem happens when we have to start going into the future. That's going to be a tricky series of shows. Yeah. <laughs> at the point at which we go past the point at which we're yeah. currently at, that's going to really represent a problem. But uh, for now, 
we don't have that problem, and it's a great problem not to have. So uh, with that in mind, I'll sign out. Uh, this has been me, you know, the 80s kid. Bye-bye. This is Ian. Farewell. And this is Justin. Goodbye. idea where we can talk about Zorro the Gay Blade though. <laughs> well, has anybody seen Zorro the Gay Blade? This is the spoon, no, right? but I want to talk about it with a pipe like that. Hang on a minute. I'm just gonna because I think I've seen this film. This is a spoof, is it? Was it a no, was this, no, you're thinking of the television series that came up late, which was called something like Zorro and Son or something. I'm pretty but sure. It had, but it had but it had George Hamilton in it, right? This can't be taken seriously, right? I mean, anything with George Hamilton in it, surely. It's a comedy, right? Probably. I don't know. I've not seen it. I remember it, I remember it being... I, look, I've seen it on a video once, you know, in some point in the 80s. So, Ian, since you want to talk about it... <laughs> that's, that's, I, I want to be informed about it. Really? You've got to share this. <laughs> Zorro the Gay Blade. It's just, it's just no, I, I, I can't say anything without being PC now. Well, one of the things, hard. one of the things about it is that movies uh, reputedly often have like four hundred potential titles, even if they are an adaptation of Zorro. So it goes from you know, Zorro, Zorro action sword fighter, Zorro, you know, and they had this massive list, and the one that they after they crossed out all the others, the one that they settled on in the end was. Zorro the Gay Blade. That was out of hundreds of alternatives. Right. That's a mind blower, right there. This is this is not a serious film. I, I'm just going to put this out right uh, on the front. It's sexy. It's zany. It's sensational. It's George Hamilton. You know, it's more like a carry on thing. It's this is not this is not intended to be a serious treatment of the Zorro legend. And I think yes, I think that's uh, unless you know the marketing is awful. So I think uh, the answer is we're not talking the private life of Sherlock Holmes here, are we? (laughs) The answer is that the uh, the answer to the initial query, why didn't we talk about it, is because really, once you've read that sort of tag log log line, that's all you need to know, really.